Well, if you've ever read Luke chapter 1 and its prologue, he will introduce Theophilus there. And there in verse 3, he calls him the most excellent Theophilus. So who is Luke writing to? Well, he is most likely the patron. He is the one who is funding the publishing of Luke and Acts. We learned last week that's volume 1 and volume 2. I don't think there's much doubt that this was a very influential person in political circles. So it very well could be that Luke's giving his attempt, led by the Holy Spirit of God, to give this Theophilus, this most excellent one, maybe this high-ranking official, he's trying to give him a defense of the gospel. Or he might say he's giving him track one and track two. You ever give out a gospel track? He gives out the gospel track, Luke, and then he's going to continue to teach him so that he can disciple Theophilus. And then the Bible says this is about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. I hope you understand how important that is. What he did and what he taught. John Calvin said, To do and to teach is a holy knot that cannot be untied. I like that. To do and to teach. In other words, the Son of God followed the model that God had always taught in redemptive history. In other words, deed is followed by revelation. There's a reason this is happening. So God would do something and he would explain it. And what is the implication of the word began? Is everybody listening? If you begin something, then you're going to continue to do something, and that's where you get volume 1 and volume 2. Luke says, I, I, I've taught you his earthly ministry, what he began to do, and now I'm going to teach you through his spirit after his ascension what he is continuing to do. Unless you haven't figured this out, folks, Jesus is still at work in our world. Now, we act like a lot of times that he's not, but Jesus is still at work. And so Acts tells us what Jesus continued to do and continued to teach. And what is the hinge of his earthly ministry and his heavenly ministry. What's the hinge? The ascension. And I'm going to preach on the ascension next Sunday morning. And you need to be here to hear that. But that's the hinge. And, and Luke is going to recount the ascension at the end of the gospel, Luke chapter 24. But he's going to give you more of an explanation and detail of that ascension when you get to the book of Acts. So the difference between all that Jesus did and is continuing to do, all hinges on his ascension. Meaning, what he did in Luke's gospel when his feet were on this earth for three years, that was what he began to do. What he is continuing to do is not through an earthly ministry, but a heavenly throne as he does his ministry through his Holy Spirit among us. In Acts, he's conducting his work through his Spirit today in his apostles Today, he's conducting his work through you and me. I hope he is, right? I hope he's doing it through us. Now, why did, he, why did the Lord instruct them for 40 days? Now, as I read through the Gospels and I think about the disciples, the first thing I think about is how much they're like me and you, right? They're not the sharpest knives in the drawer. At many turns, they're not... Not all their puppies are barking, if you know what I mean, right? They're, they're just not in, along the lines of the framework of how Jesus is thinking and what he is doing. And so they do things at times and we're like, what's up with these guys? And think about this. 
he's teaching them, and he taught them for three and a half years, or three years, and now he's got 40 days that he's teaching them again, and Luke 24 gives us a glimpse of what he's teaching. If you'll read toward the end of that chapter, you will see clearly what he is teaching them. But the fact of the matter is, you'd think they would have caught on to all that he had to teach them in the 40 days. But then, of course, we're going to read this question in a few moments, and we're going to think, well, maybe you missed it. But what are they called to do? What? What was Jesus doing? And this is the heart of the sermon that everybody in here, if you profess to know Christ, and you need to hear this. What, what is it that he's teaching them to be? And we stop and say, what is it that God would have us be in his church? Why do we even come? Why do we bear the name Christian? What, what is first and foremost? What is he training them to be? A witness. Amen. You're scared to say it, aren't you? It's an indictment. It's like David was saying when he was, went to pray and we're thinking, we sing all to you. And then we think, ooh, is it really that way, privatized in my life? Am I really living this out? So he's preparing them to be a witness. Won't you love this? In those 40 days, he presents himself to be alive. We don't serve a dead Savior, folks. He's alive. Do you know in the Gospels, he said to them on one occasion, Phantoms don't eat fish. Touch me. I'm not a ghost. I love that because I'm a fisherman. So eating fish and catching fish has to be next to Jesus, right? No question about it. But he's eating fish. I am the bodily, resurrected and glorified Christ. And then he gives them many convincing proofs, which means he proved to them without a doubt that he was the resurrected Christ, And this is the spiritual kingdom of God ruling in the hearts of people through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's preparing them to see. That's what he is teaching them. And in verse 4, he gives this command. Do not lose Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. What would be your tendency if you were living in the city where Jesus was crucified? Galilee is a whole lot safer. Let's go north. Let's get out of here. But that's not what the Lord says. Look, the very city where he was put on trial and crucified and, of course, resurrected and bodily manifested before them, the very city where he was raised, the very city the Bible says that the greater son of David would reign forever, Jerusalem is going to be significant on the next calendar of events, according to the book of Acts. We're going to see it shortly. But the fact is, Galilee is a lot safer. But the Lord of glory says you stay in Jerusalem where it is not safe and you wait for the promise of the Father. In, uh, the Bible says in Luke 3.16 that John baptizes with water, which was preparatory. But when the Holy Spirit comes, you will be baptized by Him. So we might say that the crowning gift of the resurrection, and we, sometimes we forget this, is the Holy Spirit of God sent from heaven. We miss this, folks, but the crowning gift of the resurrection is that the Holy Spirit would be sent. Folks, if there's no Holy Spirit, there's no power. If there's no power, there's no conversion. If there's no conversion, there's absolutely no advancement of the kingdom of God upon the face of the earth. So, the Holy Spirit sent from heaven is the crowning achievement of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The outpouring of the Spirit 
was prophesied through all major and minor prophets. And it finds its culmination in John chapter 14 through 16 where Jesus says, It's expedient for me. I must go away. Why? If I don't go away, the Comforter will not come. So this is the fulfillment that you're reading. The coming of the Spirit of God is just as important redemptively as all the historical events of the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. You need to get that into your framework. These are Christ events. The coming of the Spirit is restoration time. And folks who get enamored with tongues and fire and wind are missing the entire meaning of the book of Acts. Ladies and gentlemen, this was restoration time. This was a one-time event of the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. To ask for another Pentecost would be like asking for another ascension or another crucifixion or another resurrection. These are... Christ events and thus the giving of the Spirit at this particular time was restoration. So the kingdom, this was kingdom coming time, right? Now I think one of the worst distortions in theological circles today is the idea that the kingdom of God is completely future. That's a terrible misrepresentation and distortion of the Word of God. The view that the kingdom of God is something way out there completely in the future, destroys the biblical testimony of the breakthrough of the life, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of the king. Folks, yes, the consummation of the kingdom is in the future, but the kingdom of God and his reign is right now. Jesus Christ already reigns. And so the mission of the early church was to bear witness to that reality. Not just in Jerusalem. Not just in Ozark, but in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. There are two stages in the words and deeds of Jesus. Volume 1 is Luke. Volume 2 is Acts. All right. Now you all ready for the sermon? Here it is. The question of the restoration of the kingdom. Do you see it in verse 6? Now that's an interesting thing to see a conversation between Christ and his disciples. The text says, as they came together... They were continuing to meet for these 40 days. Uh, It had been 40 days of teaching concerning the kingdom of God and his work. If if you read Luke 24, if that's what Christ is teaching them, which I know it is, then for them to turn around and ask this question, you have to think, okay. Well, anyway, the disciples asked this question. seems somewhat strange to us. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, commentators vary on how harsh they are toward the disciples when they ask this question. Some of them just say, you know, they're just quacks. They're just missing it. And a lot of commentators are really hard on these guys. We probably would have asked the same question. So, we might say that it's not total ignorance. It's not total uh, anti-intellectualism. It's basically... We might say misguided, yes, misdirected, yes, and no. Why? Because the last 40 days, Jesus has told them about the coming of the outpouring of the Spirit. It was actually given in the major and minor prophets. So in your mind, when the Spirit of God came in fullness, what would that mean? Kingdom. Right? If you have been an Old Testament student, you would have been thinking, without question... We might call it Old Testament eschatology. Don't let that word scare you. Eschatos means end times. So even though we study Revelation in 
the New Testament. We could also study Daniel in the Old. And, and Daniel is, in chapters 7 through 12, eschatological in nature. There's stuff that's real hard to understand. It's end-time events. And you really can't understand Revelation unless you put it together with Daniel. So the fact of the matter is, this question about the kingdom would be natural to an Old Testament student. Are y'all listening? Did I lose anybody? It would be natural for them to ask this particular question. The coming of the kingdom for any Jew in the first century would have automatically signaled in their mind restoration to Israel. I know, we want that now in the U.S., don't we? Restoration to the United States of America. As Amos prophesied, he said this, the fallen booth of David would be righted anew. So this would be in their mind. Uh, man, David's kingdom's not there right now. They're under Roman suppression. And so the question of the kingdom, yes, somewhat misdirected in another sense because the restoration of Israel and the coming of the Spirit of God was so much bigger than what those disciples could have ever imagined. You know, I use the word parochial, and we think about private schools, and we want it, to, and that's usually a good thing. But the fact of the matter is, this scope is not limited to your parish. You can't contain this gospel. It's not something that's just for Israel and their parish. It's bigger than that. They were thinking of an earthly kingdom. They were thinking of national boundaries. They were thinking of restricted borders, right? We know about that kind of stuff. But they didn't grasp the teaching of Jesus for a lifetime who proclaimed that the kingdom of God would go far beyond the boundaries of Israel and the greater son of David would initiate a kingdom with no end, right? Y'all getting this? Don't make me repeat that, right? The fact is they didn't understand the timing, they didn't understand the manner, and they didn't understand the scope of what Jesus was saying. And let's look at those three things. Let's think about that for a moment. The question of the timing of the kingdom is something that we need to think about. Notice that. Is it the time? Lord, are you about to give us restricted borders? Are you about to cut the boundaries down? And Jesus said, that's not what we're doing. You have resurrected from the dead, and you are in Jerusalem. Is it at this time that the kingdom will be restored? And they ask about the timing, and God says, here's what he says. As far as I'm concerned, you guys are on a need-to-know basis. Right? You're on a need-to-know basis. Do you ever get frustrated with these nitwits that write all the books about the timing of the second coming? I mean, they just, I don't know what it is with humanity. This inclination to want to try to figure out something that God says you can't figure out. I mean, and here it is. This, this, this is given to the mind of God. It's a hidden thing. It's a secret thing. And you're not going to find this out. I read recently about a man who said he had figured out when Christ was going to come. He said, you know, the Bible says no man knows the hour nor the day. So he says he's going to come back at night on the half hour. <laughs> I mean, people are crazy, all right? You're not going to know the timing of his return. And again, the kingdom restoration that they're asking for is going to come in the future. In a worldwide millennial reign. But the fact of the matter is, it's not for you to know. There's something else that you need to be concerned about because the secret things belong 
to Yahweh God. All right, so that's the timing of the kingdom. But there's also a question about the manner of the kingdom. Folks, it's very detrimental for us to not connect Acts 1-8 with the question that the disciples ask. That's poor exegesis. And so often we take Acts 1-8 and we say, well, we just got to go tell people about Jesus. But do you really know why you're telling people about Jesus? Do you know why he commissioned you of all that you've seen and heard that you're going to bear witness of? Well, the manner of it. Remember, when he gives Acts 1-8, it's, at, it's in response to a question. There's a coordinating conjunction. It's called but. And it's therefore a reason. Listen to the verse. You guys are looking at the wrong thing. We ask the question of the kingdom. The Lord Jesus Christ turns around and says, but you will receive power. So the kingdom will not come through a cataclysmic political power. And it won't come at this moment with the installation of the royal king sitting on Zion's hill. That's basically what he's saying. It's not going to come like that at this moment. The kingdom will come and advance through the Spirit's power, and check this out, and your witness. Are y'all listening? Look at me. Look at me. How's it going to come? Not political, not cataclysmic. How's it going to come? Through the Spirit's power and your witness. Pause for a moment. This is the Bible. You believe the Word? Yes. We believe the Word. Well, listen to what he's saying. The manner of the kingdom. The Spirit will come in power, and your witness will be empowered, and this will be the power of the kingdom as it advances among the nations. Now, let's talk about the scope of the kingdom. There's no question that the scope, as far as those disciples, when they first asked that question, was focused on Israel. Right? It's no mistake that Jesus would say, stay in Jerusalem. But then he would, limit it. he would not limit it to that, right? He says your witness will go to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He's reconfiguring their scope. One of the reasons, I woke you up, didn't I? That God sent me to your church is to help you reconfigure your scope. Is everybody listening? You need your scope reconfigurated. We all do, right? We need this daily. And the fact of the matter is, the scope is not ethnocentric to the people of Israel. It's not ethnocentric to the people of America. It's not ethnocentric to the people of Ozark, Missouri. It's global and it's centrifugal. What do we mean by that? Well, it's global because it will go to the ends of the earth. It's centrifugal because you're going to be sent out to do it. In circular fashion. You're going to be sent out. It's global in its advancement. Yes. But you're the ones that are going to be sent out to do it. Old Testament missions was come and see. Come to to Jerusalem. Come to Israel. Come to the temple. Right? New Testament missions is centrifugal. Meaning the disciples would be sent out. This has worldwide dimensions. And our mental focus on the kingdom must far supersede any ethnocentricity, period, right? It can't be restricted to us. It embraces all people, not just Israelites. And God has a quest to save sinners, and it doesn't just include Americans. Amen? I hear a few amens. needs to be a collective amen from a church that's on mission for the king. That's why we're here, ladies and gentlemen. 
The fact of the matter is, it embraces all people. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my... You know what this word is? Martyres in the Greek, which later came to know in English as martyr. Well, Katie barred the door there, right? I like all this Jesus stuff, get out of hell free card. I like the going to heaven part, but you mean I might have to die for the cause of Christ? That's exactly right. When you're a witness, you may have to die. I know you're in a comfortable church in Ozark, Missouri. First Baptist, first Baptist church. We got everything right. But the fact of the matter is, let's read Acts. Many of them died for the cause of Christ. Faithful to the witness. The word will come to mean again, martyrs. You're going to be my witnesses in ever-expanding circles. And we're going to start in Jerusalem. We're going to go out from there. Acts 1.8 needs to be understood in its missionary dimensions. But it also needs to be understood in its Old Testament background. It didn't just start right here. Because the Bible reminds us, Isaiah 32, verse 15. Because of time, I won't go there. But it says that the Spirit of God will be poured out from on high. That's Old Testament. 700 years before this event. When this redemptive historical event happens in Acts, there's going to be a power that comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in other earthly political kingdoms all across the world in the Spirit's power. With the Holy Spirit Himself working. Your witness for me, listen to this, will end up having great effect in taking the gospel to the nations. So the richness of Acts chapter 1-8 is found in its background in the Old Testament. Notice the phrase, you shall be my witnesses. How many times have we just read over that? I've heard Acts 1-8, preacher. I know that verse. Did you know that in Isaiah 43, 10, 12, and then Isaiah 44, 8, God calls, God says, you shall be my witnesses. So folks, this is fulfillment in the New Testament from the Old. Four different times. You shall be my witnesses. So when we get to this text, Jesus is not just saying, I'm going to send you out into the world so you can tell people about me. He's actually making a statement that is a fulfillment of all the Old Testament background. Actually... The entire section is a conjunction with Old Testament background. It's laden with all these uh, allusions from the Old Testament. So when he says, you shall be my witnesses, I'm getting to the good part, you ready? When he says, you shall be my witnesses, he is affirming that he is the true and living God. When Jesus says, you shall be my, that's the most audacious saying in the world if he's not God. How audacious for him to say, you shall be my singular witnesses. You know why he's saying that? Because he is Yahweh God. Oh, he's the God that rolled out the heavens and the stars and every part of it. He's the God that made the world. And he is saying to us, that's what you're doing. I am the Lord and you will be my witnesses. If Jesus is not Yahweh God, again, this is the most audacious language ever given to humankind. But he is God. So when you're going out to witness, it's more than just telling people about Jesus. It's telling them that He is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. He is God bodily resurrected. He is God seated at the right hand of the Father. 
That's what we're going out to do. You've observed something. You've seen something. You've heard something. And the Spirit of God will come upon you to empower you for that kind of effective witness to take my name to the ends of the earth because I am Yahweh God. Thus says the Lord. The witness is going to begin in Jerusalem, the city of David, where he was crucified and resurrected. It would, that would be the first place where the gospel will be proclaimed. And that's true. We read Acts, the very first place, right where he was crucified and resurrected, was where the gospel started. But then the Lord adds, Jerusalem and Samaria. Is this an accident? No. It's found in the Old Testament, right? If you read Ezekiel 37, 15 through 22, you remember the northern and southern kingdom? They were divided, right? Y'all remember that story? The Bible says the stick of the northern kingdom and the stick of the southern kingdom will be united under one king. Oh, folks, God doesn't make mistakes, does he? He's going to take those hybrids, those Samaritans, the ones the Jews hated. Remember the woman at the well? Oh, the Lord's going to take those hated Samaritans who are racially should be kicked out of the commonwealth of Israel and is going to save their souls just like he does the Jews. He's going to take the stick of the northern, the stick of the southern. He's going to unite them with one king. And his name is Jesus. Now listen to how it's all summed up. I don't, I don't know if you know this was in there. One verse I've got to read, Isaiah 49. It would really behoove you to look at that and find it. Isaiah 49, verse 6. This is the servant song of Isaiah that finds its completion in Acts chapter 1. Okay? Listen to chapter 49 of Isaiah. I like to hear the pages turn. Listen to what it says. He says, It is to light a thing that you should be my servant. It is to light a thing that you should be my servant. To raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Listen to this, folks. I will make you as a light for Jerusalem. I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Acts 1 is the fulfillment of that promise. Don't you love the Bible? No accidents with God. What you're reading in Acts chapter 1 is the fulfillment of it. Do you remember what Jesus said? Another great commission text, John 20, 21. As the Father hath sent me, so send I you, in view of the urgency of Jesus' commission, don't you think we all ought to seek to be great commission Christians? There ought to be a check in your spirit, a little bit of an inventory. Why does this church exist? What are you doing as a believer? What's your reason for your existence? We, too, are witnesses of the resurrected Lord. How oh, we haven't seen him visibly, but he lives in us. You know, Jesus said something about that, right? More blessed are those who have not seen me and believe. If you're saved, ladies and gentlemen, today, then you're a witness of the King. If you're a born-again believer, then you are a witness. We need to live our lives under the influence of the mission. That's what I want to encourage you. To do today as your pastor. Live your life 
under the influence of the mission. And pay the price. Be willing to pay the price, whatever it costs. No amens? Mission, of course, includes involvement across the street and around the world. And some people say, why are we getting on a plane, preacher? We've got plenty to do around here. Are you doing anything? Hello, Tokyo. The very people who say to me, preacher, we ought not spend that money to go overseas are the very few people that don't ever cross the street to speak to a neighbor about Jesus. You know why you say those things? Because you're worried about money. God owns that money. He owns it all. And when you read this, folks, and you come away with it thinking that we've got to just do our ministry here, right here, yes, we need to do that. But if you can read this in Acts and come up with any interpretation other than what I have given you, then you disagree with the finest theologians in the world. You can't get that out of this text. So ladies and gentlemen, anything different. So it is responsibility of Christian leaders like me and David, Chris and Don it, it is, and Chuck. It is our responsibility. Blake left you out. Sorry about that. And Blake, I did that on purpose. If we don't burn with passion for the mission, then you won't. Right? If we don't burn with passion for the mission, then how can we ever expect this church to do the same thing? A great commission Christian is first and foremost a witness. You are a witness. E. Stanley Jones lived between 1884 and 1973. Uh, he was wrestling with what he was going to do with his life, like most of you teenagers and college students and adults. <laughs> right? Trying to figure out what it is. Prolonged adolescence, right? But he was wrestling with that. God, what's your call on my life? He said, I'm going to do one of two things. I feel like God's going to either call me as a lawyer or a preacher. Eventually, he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be a preacher, but I'm going to be God's lawyer. I'm going to plead his case. To everybody I come in contact with. God raised up E. Stanley Jones and placed him in India. And he actually ministered among the intelligentsia of the day. He preached and taught the intellectuals of his day. But before that took place, once he committed to preach, he got up one Sunday to preach his first sermon. And he stood in the pulpit. And as he was doing his introduction, he used a word that did not exist. It was called indeterminism. No, it's called indifferentism. That was what it was called. And this real sophisticated woman kind of looked up at him and went. And it, you know, it kind of hurt his feelings and rattled him a little bit. And he was, I mean, it was his first sermon. And he was a very sharp guy, but indifferentism was not a word. So he got bumfuzzled. And finally he says, ladies and gentlemen, I've forgotten my sermon. And he started walking off the platform. And as he approached his seat, the Lord God spoke to his heart and said, I have, not, have I not done anything for you? E. Stanley Jones said he just paused in his tracks. He said, God, yes, you have done plenty for me. He turned around and got back up in the pulpit. He said the sermon was still terrible. But what he did was he told them what God had accomplished in his life. And when it was all said and done, one man walked up to him and said, I want to find what you found. He later on talks about a young preacher boy who got up to preach a sermon. And the preacher boy finished and said, you know what, I'm tired of perjuring myself. Because what I'm preaching is not alive in me. And he said this, I'm not preaching next Sunday morning until what's in that word is alive in me.
He got along with God during the week. On Saturday, the Lord spoke to his heart, and the congregation thought they had gotten a new minister. My point of all of that is, folks, you can't be a witness if God hadn't done anything in your life. E. Stanley Jones knew that secret. As a matter of fact, he later would say, Stanley Jones would say, all great literature, literature is autobiography. So all real preaching is testimony. Ooh, I like that. Folks, to believe in the Bible is to believe that what it says works does in fact work. Now, it's one thing for us to say, oh, Jesus can save anybody. Are you being his witness? It's easy for us to say, well, the Bible says, well, is it true for you? And I think what our church needs to do, listen to a sermon like this, is get along with God and grapple with Him. Wrestle with the Lord. You need to stop our activity until we know that what the Bible says is true is actually true in us. And my whole point is, if you're saved by grace through faith, you cannot help but be a witness. You will. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. God, help me not to perjure myself. Lord, that I, Lord, live out these principles and believe them, but they're true in me. Lord, that's what I pray for our church family. Lord, I know this is a heavy dose, and it's kind of in your faith teaching, and I realize that, Lord, but we all need to get along with you and grapple with you. We, we do so much, so many things just by mechanics. We come to the church, we serve our time, we go home, but are we living under the influence of the mission? You shall be my witnesses. God, help us in that regard. Lord, let our hearts fall before you today. Thank you, Lord, that you are our King. You're our Savior. And Lord, the fact that we can be your witnesses is so incredible that the gospel advance is through the power of the Holy Spirit and our witness. God, help us to obey you. God, help our church to get people on their mind. Lord, to, to help us think outside the, uh, the confines of Ozark and Missouri and the U.S. And Lord, all over the world as you take the gospel to the nations. God, if there's an individual in our presence that's lost. And they're saying, you know what, I can't be an effective witness because the truth is not alive in me. Lord Jesus, you said the truth they shall know and you'll set them, you'll set them free. Lord, the truth begins with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that you, Lord of glory, came down from heaven, robed yourself in human flesh, and died the, died the death that we could never die. You died and gave death its final death blow because you died without sin. Paid that penalty for our sin that the very righteousness of God might be given to us. Lord, thank you that you obeyed the law's demands. Thank you that you came down from heaven voluntarily you never once sinned and then you took that perfect body to the tree of calvary and died in my stead god that's what salvation is and if we'll turn from sin and self turn 180 degrees confessing that we're sinners and there's no possible way that we could ever get any righteousness whatsoever and we would trust in what you did on calvary for us shedding your blood then we can have your righteousness and have entrance into heaven that's the message that we proclaim to the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Would you stand for a time of invitation? Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me clearly. The altar is not just for people who are lost coming down to get saved. The altar is for believers to get right with God. And it may be that the king would like for you to take your first effective witness step by just making a move and getting on your knees before God and asking Him to make what the Bible says is true alive in you. Amen? Let's respond to the Lord.